This week's edition of Landlording for Life is brought to us by our good friends at GotMold.com. Go to GotMold.com backslash Landlording for Life and receive 10% off your personal mold testing kit for your rental properties or for your personal residence. Never again worry about a tenant complaining about mold when you can purchase this kit and receive certified results yourself. Now on to this week's podcast. This is the Landlording for Life podcast, where landlords explore their success and stories of failure while building a foundation to improve upon. Here's your host, Sean Morrissey. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Landlording for Life. As always, thanks for tuning in with us on another week and another great episode. So today we are going to dive into house hacking. Um, specifically, you know, what it is. And I wanted to introduce a gentleman by the name of Mr. Frank Furman, who is the co-founder and chief growth officer of PadSplit, uh, which is uh, just a fantastic software product that uh, house hackers can use to either rent out a portion of their house. Um, and Frank can elaborate on that a little bit more, but really wanted to talk about house hacking, the, the pros and cons, who it's best for, and go from there. So um, Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sean. Appreciate it. Yeah, you bet you, man. So, like we do with all our guests, go ahead and tell us a little bit, bit about your uh, yourself, your background, and what uh, inspired you to co-found PadSplit. Sure. So, you know, I'm a child of Philadelphia. Grew up in the Philadelphia area. Left left town to go to the Naval Academy, and um, after kind of that in grad school, joined the Marine Corps. So, I spent seven years in the Marine Corps infantry and. Uh, you know, as infantry officer command at the platoon and company levels, did a couple tours in Afghanistan, um, then transitioned to work in, in R&D at the Office of Naval Research around a portfolio of R&D programs. And, and then I completely kind of changed gears a bit and went into management consulting. So I went uh, to work for McKinsey & Company in London, uh, worked there along the way, kind of started having kids and settling down and, and all that kind of good stuff. Um and, you know, as part of that, you know, I, I've been married for now almost 11 years. Um, my wife, we met at the Naval Academy. She actually was in the Marine Corps as well. But um, her brother, Atticus, was based in Atlanta and had really built kind of this successful string of real estate businesses, uh, property management, real estate investment. Uh, he put a bunch of funds in a syndication, hard money lending. I'm probably missing a few things, but kind of... Uh, you know, a little, little bit of everything. And, you know, when he was really kind of just getting a start after the crash, um, you know, I knew what he was doing. He was, you know, kind of my my wife's older brother. And then I liked it. So I invested in a few deals and kind of kept tabs on it, but it wasn't on the, the operating side. But, um, you know, he sort of stumbled into this this sort of shared housing model, right? So he was he was buying up houses after the crash and you know bought one in southwest atlanta pretty basic home he's planning on renting it through section eight and the two neighbors came by otis and mitch and they said hey man you know we we see what you're doing our house is being foreclosed on we want to rent rooms in this house and he's like ah you know i i don't know i don't even i don't know what you're talking about i'm just you know put this on section eight whatever i'm like well we'll pay a hundred bucks a pop you know a hundred bucks a week and he's looking at it and he's, you know, thinking, oh gosh, you know, uh, it's like four or five bedroom home. I can get 800 from the housing authority, hundred bucks a week. Okay. You know, why not? You know, I'll give it a go. 
And so we did it, did another one. And uh, that was in 2009, did another one in 2012. And, you know, fast forward a few years, um, I'd moved to Atlanta. I transferred to uh, the Atlanta office of the consulting firm I was in. And then as we kind of had another child, I'd, I'd gone to a job at Georgia Pacific, which, you know, which, which I liked a lot and was kind of a big opportunity for me in terms of, you know, running a, running a P&L and, and kind of working for working for that company. But hey, candidly, I was, I was a little bored. You know, I'd, uh, my hours had been cut in half almost, which is a good thing, except that, you know, I'm sort of overactive and I, I don't take kind of resting well. So, um, and at the same time for him, you know, he'd more or less transition out of the day-to-day role for a lot of his businesses. So the general contracting side, he kind of hired a very capable president of that operation and he wasn't really handling the day-to-day on the lending or the property management. So we'd meet up and, you know, like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm bored. You know, I'm going to the gym at work. You know, I'm, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to find things to do. And in fact, I was doing some, you know, side hustle consulting and different things. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'm bored too. But this idea has been kicking around in the back of my head for, you know, six, seven years. You know, this, this idea of renting rooms and a house and you can make so much more money, but you know, there's all these operational challenges, you know, what, what do you think? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Uh, well, let's, you know, let's think about it. So that's, you know, it was a big part of how it started. You know, he'd, uh, he'd won a grant from the city of Atlanta to sort of explore the concept as part of an affordable housing challenge. And, you know, just sort of started doing it bit by bit. It was, it was kind of a sort of a side hustle at first and first few customers came on. He'd done a prototype house with a, with an investment property he owned here in Atlanta. Then we got accepted to, uh, an accelerator, the Techstars accelerator here in town and, and just kind of went from there. So that was sort of the summer of 18, uh, brought on, a, a a technical co-founder, John O'Brien, who's sort of your, you know, standard issue, uh, you know, Stanford, you know, has a PhD in physics, sort of smart guy, you know, he's definitely the smart one of the group and, uh, and just went from there. So we've gone from that, those sort of, uh, inauspicious beginnings to, you know, we're just shy of about 100 folks now. We're in eight markets. Uh, we've, we're coming up on 2,500 doors. We're um, just kind of going from there. Just raised our, our Series B round of financing um, of uh, over $20 million. So we're, yeah, just trying to trying to make it work and go from there. Awesome, man. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty exciting stuff because, you know, like I was saying before the call, you know, back back in 2004, my, my second – rental property ever was uh, a room for rent type of scenario where in essence it was more or less like a five bedroom two bath house um you know decent sized rooms but bigger living spaces uh plenty of parking so i was like boy this is going to work out great and to your point from earlier i mean that that type of property is really a cash machine it really uh you're able to yield much higher rents um but it does come with its operational challenges in my opinion um so for instance um, you know, ultimately keeping common areas clean and trying to control utilities and things of that nature and stuff that we can elaborate in on here shortly. But, you know, back in those days, all you could really do is either put an ad in the paper or use Craigslist. And as we've come to find with Craigslist over the course of time, it's been um, kind of used and abused by folks that aren't aren't actually legitimate uh, tenants or renters at that at this point. So, Anyways, having said all that, before I go down a, a rabbit hole of my own, um, I was wanting us just to talk about the concept of, of house hacking first, right? Because to me, this room for rent model is really the 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 base form of house hacking. Is really 
um, in markets that are that are ultimately very expensive. Uh, you know, take San Francisco for for instance is really an option for folks to um, get into the the rental game. Um, how else might you define house hacking? Any other any other forms that you find to be um, you know I guess uh, fruitful at this point? Yeah, I mean, I guess the way that I think of house hacking in my mind is um, essentially a way of generating revenue um, from your primary residence. So sometimes that's, you know, hey, it's a duplex and I'm living in one half, or it's a single family home and I'm renting out rooms, or it's a quadplex and I'm renting out the other three, uh, or even, you know, I think ADUs, uh, whether you're renting out the ADU or living in the ADU and renting out the house, um, or even doing Airbnb. I think they're all sort of versions of that same theme. We tend to be a little bit more on the focused on the non-owner occupied, uh, non-owner occupant kind of investment property, but we do, we do have some owner occupied properties and, and so on, but our, our focus generally will be on that, but it's, it's the same sort of mindset, right? I mean, it's all about how do you get better leverage? How do you, generate more cash flow from your assets the mentality is exactly the same even if generally our investors are not physically living in the property yeah, and i think that was a fantastic definition i mean in essence generating revenue from your primary residence so while you gave different examples there you know i wanted to share one resource that i came across lately and it's it's been fairly uh, fruitful uh it's neighbor.com where in essence you can rent out parking spaces or a portion of your basement for uh, storage for somebody. So there's there's all sorts of stuff out there right now. And, you know, pad split seems to be just another one of those options made available to folks to help find uh, tenants at this point. Um, moving right along, I was wondering if you might be able to elaborate for us on who who pad split might be best suited for at this time. Sure. So we're I mean, we're a two sided marketplace. So on the resident side, we're really a workforce housing company. So our Residents, we do background check, credit check, employment verification, income verification. You know, we're integrated with PLAD, so we're checking either pay stubs or bank accounts. Um, but, you know, our, our kind of core demographic on that side is folks who are, you know, they're working full time, but oftentimes aren't making quite enough to get their own place, right? So singles, um, average ages in the 30s, but we're, you know, we kind of get people from across, uh, you know, young to old, you know, and everything in between. And, you know, folks who are maybe security guards or, you know, working in retail, fast food, um, hospitality, kind of anything across the board. That's that's sort of our uh, our sort of sweet spot. A lot of folks who kind of move to move for work, right? They move to Atlanta or Houston or New Orleans for a job, and maybe they don't have kind of a family network that they they did back home or or what have you. So that's kind of who we are generally marketing towards on that side. That we're or at least that's who we who tends to live in our houses. Um, on the investor side, we kind of run the gamut as well, to be honest. And we have everything from, you know, folks who are, you know, the retail investors, they're maybe getting their start in retail investment or in, in real estate investment. Um, it's, you know, maybe a bit of a side hustle, right? They've got enough to have one investment property and they're managing it on their own. And that's fine. We have, we have a number of, uh, as we call them hosts who are doing exactly that, who, you know, they buy a property, they're doing the Burr method, and they're just, they're doing it with pad split. And so they're, you know, buying a house, getting it set up, listing in our platform, and, and going from there. And now some of those have built out pretty sizable portfolios. Actually, our first customer, Heather, she's, you know, she's a 
a mom with a job, you know, or at least she had a job because uh, now she's up to, I guess, seven or eight houses. And, you know, she's generating, I don't know, in excess of $350,000 a year in revenue. So, you know, she's, you know, she might not be working a normal job anymore, but for her, it's her, you know, retirement plan. And, um, you know, she kind of got into the market at the right time a couple of years ago, perhaps, but, you know, she's really kind of done well without a ton of assets. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I mean, we have major institutional investors, um, you know, that are backed by the biggest banks or family offices um, who can really do it at scale. And that's that's great, too. But we're we're relatively agnostic on that front. But um, I would say where when I think about the archetype of a pad split investor, um, you know, all all investing, certainly real estate investing, but I would say all investing is is about having a view that not everybody shares, or at least you want to be ahead of, you know, you want, if you want a big opportunity, you need to be ahead of other people. Um, so, you know, our investors, or I'd say one of the challenges that many investors have with um, workforce housing, kind of what we do is it's not something that they understand because it's not something they live, right? So when they, they think, Hey, you know, and, and this is a classic real estate investor trap, you know, for all landlords. And and we've all done it at some point um, in some small way. But, you know, you think about a house as your home, you know, so I'll, I'll walk houses with investors all the time. And I'll say, you know, why do you have a bookshelf? And they're like, well, you know, I like books. I'm like, you know, I like books too. But, you know, this is a rental property. Uh, bookshelves are hard to clean. You know, stuff gets shoved behind them. They're messy. Like, you don't need a bookshelf. Like you don't want people moving in a bunch of books. You know, that's just not how it, how it works. Um, so I'll, I'll work with investors all the time who say, you know, I get it and room rentals fine, but like I never rent a room, you know, maybe when I was in school, like I understand student housing or maybe if I were old and I understand assisted living, but you know, 40 years old, would I ever rent a room? No, of course not. It's like, okay, sure. Um, but guess what? There's lots of investors who are maybe a little bit more flexible and kind of put themselves in the eye of customer and see that sort of perspective that they they perhaps don't have in their personal lives and say, look, you know, I might not be this might not be for me, but I can see how for someone who's making thirty thousand dollars a year and doesn't actually have enough income to qualify for a class C apartment because they don't make three times the rent and income. Oh, this is a great deal for them and how the flexibility and how they can save money is how they kind of move their way up the, con the housing continuum. So, you know, for me, when I think about our ideal investor, it's, it's less about, Hey, you know, who's backing you, you know, what's your capital source, that kind of thing. Cause people find capital to back good projects. It's more about, do you understand your customer, which in this case is, you know, a, a lower income worker. It's someone who's getting their start, you know, someone who's kind of building their, their way and maybe doesn't have the kind of a local network or social credibility or, or what have you to get their own place, but, you know, is working and, and trying to get by. And I mean, you know, we've, that's, that's for me. So it's, it's a little bit, Hey, do I understand that? I will build it in my risk calculations and am I willing to do something that's a little bit different for this kind of outsized return? Yeah, I think that's well explained. And you know, what I wanted to elaborate on next was what kind of house our listeners should be looking for if they're interested in getting involved in like this, this room for rent scenario. So for instance, you know, in terms of location, do you want to be, you know, near an expressway? Um, what's the minimum number of bedrooms and bathrooms? And in terms of like the general layout of the home, what should they consider? And then, you know, perhaps down to parking, what should they consider? So what, what would be some of your advice there? 
Yeah, great question. And, and one of the reasons we started with this actually came from a sort of a failure of using the wrong assets. So really the first real pad split home was was a Section 8 rentals, bigger house, kind of a, a beautiful sort of craftsman home, you know, built in 20s. Um, I should say the 1920s, so 100 years ago um, here in Atlanta. And, you know, my, my brother-in-law Atticus owned it. And Section 8 tenant, 10 was fine, but, you know, some of the family caused issues. And anyway, when, when the, the tenant left, tons of damage to the house. And one of those initial insights was, you know, those larger properties with a lot of bedrooms, you know, that extra space, you don't monetize. It's a liability, right? So that's why, you know, a lot of sophisticated investors, you know, they don't want big rental properties. They want small rental properties. You get paid for the first bedroom. You make less on the second. You make really nothing on the third. Fourth bedroom is a liability. And extra square footage is, that's just cost, right? It's extra cost to repaint. It's extra cost to turn. So one of those initial insights was, okay, what, that sort of smaller part of that market, your sort of uh, perfect rental property is really competitive right now. It's such a competitive market. Um, where's there a little less attention? So when we think about kind of the ideal pad split property relative to your traditional single family home, we like houses that are bigger. So kind of more bedrooms, more square footage because you can create more revenue generating units. Now there's, there's an upper limit on that, right? You can't have, you know, 15 bedrooms in a normal home on a street doesn't matter if it's a, you know, a, a huge house. It just, it's going to cause the stress on the parking and all sorts of issues. But, you know, we oftentimes are at, you know, six, seven, eight bedrooms and for the right kind of property that that fits just fine. You know, and, and like I tell people all the time, I mean, I have six people living in my home. I'm not a, I'm not a crazy person. I just have a family and kids and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, no one's, uh, no one's freaking out. So it's, it's no big deal. So for the right kind of property, you know, six, seven, eight bedrooms, totally doable, but you really want to kind of have a property where you're really focusing on those revenue generating units, which of course are bedrooms. So, um, so tend to be bigger. We like to be close to employment centers or public transit. So it doesn't necessarily mean cities though. Oftentimes that is the case, but you know, if, if you think about it, um, one of the biggest complaints that you might get and one of your more kind of operational headaches is, is neighbor complaints, right? And usually that's driven by parking issues. So someone parks in front of someone's mailbox or driveway, you know, those are the things that drive neighbors crazy. Well, closer you are to public transit, fewer cars, you know, people taking the bus or a train, uh, fewer complaints, kind of fewer headaches for you as the investor and, and operator. So that's, that's kind of a key consideration. But, you know, it, these are working people, you know, they, they want to be able to get to work. So yeah, being close to the expressway um, is all kind of great. So, you know, even down when we get involved and we get involved with investors pre-acquisition oftentimes, you know, in, in sort of an advisory capacity. So every day I'm sitting down with folks and they'll say, hey, what do you think about one, two, three Main Street? And, you know, I may say, ah, oh, it's on a cul-de-sac, you know, it'll be really tight for parking versus, oh, this one's on a corner lot. You know, you'll double the street parking, you know, that's that's really great. So so we like that. We don't care much about school districts, or I should say investors shouldn't, because, you know, we're talking singles. So that's that's not a consideration, really. Um, about, you know, we, uh, what yeah. about, like, number of roommates per bathroom and number of roommates per kitchen space? Is there any rule of thumb? Great. That? Yeah, great question. So we mandate that no more than four bathrooms can share, or excuse me, four bedrooms can share one bathroom. So, 
you know, we have folks that are they'll have a house with eight bedrooms and two bathrooms. That works. It's kind of a you can't go any further. Um, but in general, more bathrooms are better. So private baths, you get a huge price premium. Um, yeah, I mean, people people like people like having bathrooms. So so more is more in that in that case. Um, but yeah, no more than four to one. Um, as far as how many people can share a kitchen, there's no kind of hard and fast rule. Um, but I would say what more sophisticated investors think about is, you know, one, how many people should be in a house generally? I think above kind of seven or eight, and you begin to get in sort of a tragedy to commons issue uh, in the kitchen, right? It's like, hey, do I really know everybody? Do I know who made this mess? Smaller groups are a little bit more accountable. Um, so, I, you know, that's why I kind of like that six, seven, eight sort of uh, sort of mindset. Um, you know, sometimes folks put in a second fridge and we have tons of duplexes where it's, Hey, maybe 10 people really in a house, but you maybe have two kitchens and that's fine. You know, so it's, uh, it's, it's more of a rule of thumb on the, on the kitchen side. Okay. What about, uh, utilities now that, cause for me, that was always probably the biggest frustration and I actually lived in one of the rooms, right. And then rented out the rest of the house. So I'd like hear the shower running and I'd be like, Oh, that water has been running for like 25 minutes and I'm just. You know, it would actually drive me crazy, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm just yeah. thinking utilities and not necessarily <laughs> the wellness of the resident. Um, so, yeah, do you have any recommendations there when it comes to utilities? A- and absolutely. Yeah. So one of the great things about uh, and lucky things, I should say, about the timing of when we started the business is um, we started at a time where a lot of the, the technologies really evolved on that front to make it much, much easier to maintain. So. You can't stop people from taking long showers, right? I've, I have three kids. I'm, I'm a married man. People take long showers in my house. It drives me just as crazy. You know, they aren't paying rent either. So, uh, you know, there's that. But, uh, you know, what you can do is, and, it, and it's amazing how many investors don't even think about this, even in, even in businesses where you're paying the utilities. I mean, there is a Niagara 1.25 gallon per minute shower head. It's nine bucks on Amazon. It is the best payback investment you can ever make if you're in one of these deals. So for the water, water monitoring, again, there, there's some some systems you can use, but really you just want to make the passive investments to drive down consumption. So 0.5 gallon per minute aerators in the faucets, low flow shower heads, and that's going to make the biggest change. So again, it's one of those things with investors where, you know, I've, I've talked to investors, they're like, you know, I really like this shower head. It's what I use in my own home. And I'm like, congratulations. In this home, you should use this one because it's going to save you money and it works just fine. And that's that's the world. In your own home, you pay the water bill. You can have whatever shower head you want. Here, here's what I recommend um, for electricity and gas. Really, it's all about controlling the thermostat. So if you if you control HVAC, you're controlling your electricity spend because it's not really driven by people charging their phones or anything. That's all small potatoes. It's all about controlling HVAC. And the good news is. Super simple now with smart thermostats to install smart thermostat and lock it with a pin. So you set it to a range, you know, so it's, you know, reasonably brisk in the winter and reasonably warm in the summer. You know, you keep in kind of normal operating ranges. And not only does that dramatically cut down on your utility bill, you know, I mean, it, I live in Georgia, it is hot in the summer you cannot be cooling it down to, you know, 66 degrees or letting people control thermostat, you know, they'll, they'll put you out of business. You need to control thermostat. We have houses, you know, up in Indianapolis, it's cold during the winter. Well, guess what? 
you know, you can't have uh, people bringing it up to 80 degrees. It's not going to work. So, you know, you have to kind of, you have to control the thermostat, but that is very, very simple to do at a, at a pretty low cost um, today. So that's, that's kind of how you think about that. Um, we have sort of within our sort of member management side, sort of resident management uh, side of our business, some mechanisms for you to reinforce that with kind of house rules and so on. Some pass through some of those costs if there's issues, but, but yeah, it's, it's all in the setup and just kind of to your point, it's about thinking about it on the front end, but yeah. we're set up to sort of help people through that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And trying to get those utility estimates perhaps up front would be helpful as well. You know, one other point I wanted to bring up that I, I think all folks should consider before jumping into the, the room for rent game or house hack game is what your local community, what your local municipality will and will not allow. So for instance, what happened with our municipality is they basically evolved to say, hey, we're no longer going to allow room for rent scenarios. So with that in mind, if they found out you were renting out a room in a house um, that may not be a, a family member related to you or something of that nature, you know, you can in essence rack up some fines. I don't know if you happen to see that stuff quite often. I actually think it's one of those things that are gonna go away over the next 10 years because affordable housing is becoming a real crisis. And this is a real simple solution to that. Um, but have you had any any experiences like that where municipalities kind of get in the way between you and performing like a room for rent scenario? Yeah, I mean, you can't be a real estate investor without some local municipality causing issues. You know, that's, that's life. So yeah, the short answer is yes. Um, it's an unfortunate part of the world we live in that, um, you know, whether it's strictly forbidden or just doesn't seem like a thing that people like, you can always kind of, uh, you can count on someone to give you some sort of heartache over it. So while it's rare, it, it is the kind of thing that crops up and, and we have kind of a, a legal and policy team to kind of help folks work through those. And it's also why we're intentional about which markets we enter. Um, so there's, you know, there's places where honestly, you know, People would come to us and say, hey, I want to do this. I'd say, that's not such a great idea. Now, the thing is, real estate's hyper-local. It's a hyper-local regulatory regime. You know, Here in Atlanta, there's 83 different municipalities. We're in probably 20 of them, um, but we're not in 83. And part of that is you know, maybe local costs and that sort of thing. But part of it is, hey, some are just much, much tougher to operate in. In general, we found there's less of a question of kind of top-down enforcement. Like no, no code enforcement officers kind of breaking in your house and count toothbrushes um but it, it's much more bottom up so that's why we get involved early in the process because so much of it is you know does your property and the operations kind of conform to what the neighborhood is okay with because again you know the lady across the street she doesn't she's not pulling up you know unicode and checking the definition of family under you know zoning She's saying, you know, I don't like the looks of that, and I'm going to call code enforcement. Um, and so it's it's not one of those things where, hey, this is okay. Here's the law. Here's what's going on. Whatever. It's more, hey, someone parked like a jerk. I want you to do something about it. You know, hey, I don't like these guys. So again, part of what we do in, in sort of our advisory capacity and sort of our just being a good partner to investors capacity is kind of warding them off deals that we think are high risk. So, you know, just as an example, I would never do a passive property in an HOA. And we folks who say, oh, you know, this HOA is permissive. You can do rental properties, you can do this or that. I say, hey, that's fine. You know, it's free country. You can do it. I won't turn down business. But 
I think it's a bad idea for, you know, all the reasons you can imagine. Um, and so that's, you know, that's an aspect of it. Sometimes folks say, Hey, you know, I really think I could do this. And I, you know, I want to do 11 bedrooms here. And I'd, I'd say, Hey, you know, look, free country, you can do it. Our platform will allow it, but maybe it's not such a great idea. Cause you're, you might be asking for trouble with too many cars and that kind of thing. So, you know, being judicious is a big part of it. Um, but it's interesting. Cause I mean, take student housing as an example in any college town, rarely is the zoning, permissive for student housing. It's almost never the case. Like if you go to Athens, Georgia, you know, Lawrence, Kansas, wherever, it's not as though they've written into the zoning code. Hey, guess what? You know, uh, you can have eight people in a house, no big deal. This is fine. Um, but people accept it because you know, when you live there that you're going to have students around, they're going to pile in houses. This is the way that it works. Um, you know, and so whatever you you may be at plenty of complaints, but it's more around uh, drinking beer and acting fools and that sort of thing. Um, but people kind of accept that it's part of the, the business of living in, you know, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Well, you know, that isn't always the case, but the same sort of rule applies where, Hey, you know, certain neighborhoods, certain assets, they're not going to be a good fit. And so it, it takes an investor's eye and that's, that's something we work, work through with folks. Yeah. And it sounds like you coach folks along the way when it comes to that. Um, so, so having said all that, I did want to bleed into, you know, who bet, who pad split is and what you're best suited for. And I was hoping you could elaborate on that for a moment. Really. I think we have an idea of what pad split is, but perhaps who it's best suited for at this point and, uh, you know, really who your target investor is. Yeah. So the person who it's best suited for is someone who is, um, you know, pretty active, you know, we have some turnkey operators and places and we have a few people who set up syndicated funds. In fact, we've set up one ourselves. So, you know, there's, there's a certain passive investor out there who's, who's just fine. And, you know, we welcome their business and that's great. But as far as an operator, it's someone who's, who kind of has that itch to learn something new. Cause it is I almost think of it as kind of your early Airbnb hosts, you know, before Airbnb became kind of everything and, you know, you know, 10 million listings and so on. But, you know, it's, it's really a, an industry where there isn't a long track record. You've had operators. I mean, these, these units exist everywhere, whether they're pad splits or not. I mean, room rentals exist in every market, but you know, the kind of person who says, Hey, you know, I'm willing to look at a different buy box. I'm willing to, you know, learn how you might renovate a home a little bit differently for co-living and how you kind of capture and monetize underutilized space. And the kind of person who says, Hey, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not managing. I've got a property manager who's going to do it, but I'm ready to think about maybe a slightly different way of having the slightly more flexible, uh, you know, manner of housing. So, you know, kind of people who love to learn and people who kind of uh, are interested in new things. Um, that that's kind of a, to me, a really big part of it because, you know, there's lots of things you can do in real estate. Um, it's a really tight market right now and yields are kind of being compressed and cap rates are down and so on. So to, to kind of be on the, the cusp of something new and do something that's different, you kind of need to be interested in it, I think. Um, so that's, that's big. Okay, perfect. So, you know, you gave us a good buzzword there and that's Airbnb because I'm, I'm sure our listeners, much less myself, kind of like, well, pad split sounds like Airbnb, but it doesn't. And I was wondering if you could elaborate for us on what the differences are between pad split and Airbnb, for instance, and then what might be some of the advantages of pad split instead of Airbnb. Right. So the, the big difference is 
Airbnb is fractional in terms of time. So one short-term renter, another short-term renter, so on. We're fractional in terms of space. So I'm in one room, you're in one room, someone else is in another room. Um, the way that we're set up in some ways is very similar, right? You know, we're a two-sided marketplace. They're a two-sided marketplace. We work with landlords on one side, who we both call hosts. They work with guests who are sort of short-term residents. We work with members who are kind of long-term residents, but still sort of the same. You know, we handle payment processing and marketing, all that stuff, sort of the same. What's different is, one, um, we are focused on workforce housing. So that's, you know, in terms of demographic, that's kind of a different aspect. The way that we've kind of honed our marketing engine is laser focused on that demographic because we think that's where the biggest opportunity is. Second is we handle collections. So obviously uh, Airbnb, it's all prepay, right? You know, you want to stay in someone's house in Florida, you pay credit card ahead of time, you know, all well and good. For us, it's essentially evergreen agreements with folks, right? They move in and then they, they're essentially on weekly bill pay. So we've built our system around how to maximize collections rate, but we have a collections team and they're the ones actually doing the call, text, email, kind of, you know, reaching out to folks and, and then getting them to pay. So that's, that's an offer or that's a, a service that we provide as kind of part of our package. Um, another big piece of it is we handle what, what you would call resident management, right? So we have a 24 seven call center and all the kind of difficult parts of interpersonal issues. Again, not that we've got it perfect, but, um, you know, someone calls in Johnny ate my peanut butter, you know, Sean looked at me funny. Those calls come to us and our team is trained to sort of deescalate those situations. And sometimes that means, Hey, look, if Johnny ate your peanut butter, Sean, you might need to, maybe you didn't want to transfer, you know, you can rate, there's a rating system in between, but Airbnb doesn't handle anything between guests, obviously, you know, it's just the guest on the record. Obviously you can have a bunch of people on a, um, uh, uh, on an occupancy, but if, you know, if you and I go and stay in an Airbnb somewhere and I call in and I say, Oh, Sean's being a jerk, Airbnb, like, okay, don't, don't call us. Um, cause that's just not how they're structured. Um, and then the final piece that is, we think really important, um, is, you know, we, we have the same, a similar sort of communication suite, but ours is really honed to enabling this sort of co-living setting, right? So, uh, you know, we have a ticketing system for maintenance ticketing that's kind of built into our system. And the reason we did that, because initially, you know, we kind of thought, you know, what if we just leave people's cell phone numbers it'll all go straight to the, to the host and it'll be fine and all this stuff. But the challenge that we were running into is, you know, you and I are living in a house you live upstairs, I live downstairs, and you say, hey, there's a leaky sink, right? You submit a maintenance ticket. Well, a plumber comes to the door, and I answer it. He's like, hey, I'm here for the leaky sink. And I think, I, what are you talking about? I don't know about a leaky sink. You know, get out of here. Um, so what we did when we built our system was to say, okay, how do we get everybody on the same page with this? So now you submit the ticket. I see it in my platform, in my dashboard. And that way, when the plumber comes, I know you know, what's going on. And I also don't submit a duplicate ticket, you know, so it, it's kind of solving those two problems and really just kind of building the cohesion within the house, you know, even our kind of inner, um, inner house messaging system, which is simple, right? It's, and it's all about, Hey, you know, you and I are in the house. Maybe I just moved in, but you, you boxed me in in the driveway. Well, Hey, I need to be able to let people know, like, Hey, I'm, you know, Someone boxed me in. Who's in the Honda Accord? You know, that kind of thing. So building out the infrastructure that allows us to do that 
um, is is kind of really central to what we do because so much of the landlord's issues and kind of the property owner's issues in operating, you know, those kind of operational challenges that you mentioned are around handling the fact that you have different people in a house who are effectively strangers, right? And the idea that, you know, it'll all just sort of self-govern or, hey, you know, they'll hash it out. It's sort of a pipe dream, right? You know, it takes it takes infrastructure, it takes engagement, it takes some of these tools, and that's really what we're there to provide. Make it happen. Okay, cool. So as we wrap up for today, um, I was wondering if you could tell us the best way for our listeners to reach out to you, either to learn more about PadSplit, maybe indulge you with a few questions when it comes to room for rent type scenarios, or yeah. uh, set up a demo to check out PadSplit. Perfect. So easiest way is to just go to our website, www.padsplit.com that's p-a-d-s-p-l-i-t.com you can go there create an account if you do so one of our very friendly uh sales executives will reach out personally with a phone call to uh to talk you through it of course you can also reach out to me for what it's worth i'm like a less friendly less knowledgeable version of of those folks but uh my email is just frank at padsplit.com so feel free to just uh reach out directly and I'll, i'll get you all set up Awesome. That is perfect. And, you know, I just wanted to mention one more thing, you know, back on episode 28. So we're going back, you know, well over a year ago, we had a gentleman by the name of Ryan Shaw who actually discussed um, his house hacking system. And this was out in the San Francisco area and really expensive market. And that might be an episode for our listeners to check out as well. Uh, But in the meantime, Frank, thank you so much for your time today and really educating our listeners on the, the room for rent house hacking model. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you betcha. So that's going to conclude this week's edition of Landlording for Life. As always, if you like what you heard here today, leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform or share the episode to your friends and family. Until next week, everybody, we'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review and join our Facebook group to share your deals and ideas by searching at Landlording for Life. See you next time. of this podcast are of its host or its guests. They do not reflect the views and opinions of Chicagoland Realty Group Partners or Chicagoland Leasing and Property Management Incorporated. Any advice provided should be reviewed with a financial, tax, or legal professional and should not be considered personal information. This presentation is for educational purposes only and is deemed reliable, but we do not guarantee timeliness or completeness.